Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 is where we will be this morning. Last Sunday, we had the privilege of hearing Micah bring the Word to our hearts, and he encouraged us in the Psalms to take the Gospel to the nations so that everyone would praise the Lord. Praise the Lord to all the nations to know the covenant-keeping God. This morning, what I want to ask of our text is, what's the message that we are to give to others such that they would say, praise the Lord? What is this message? What does the gospel say about how to enter heaven? How are we to enter heaven? Who gets into heaven? How do they get into heaven? Why do some enter and why do some not enter? All of these questions and more are addressed in the parable before us this morning. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil, And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, because many are called, but few are chosen. Father, this is such a rich parable. It's so clear, hardly needs any exposition. And yet there are riches that as we dig deep into it, we see ourselves. So I pray that your word would be a mirror to our hearts, that we would see clearly that we too have made excuses as to why we don't need to come to the wedding feast, why we'd rather stay away. God, show us yet again the grace that you have for sinners, that you would invite them and make everything ready for them to come. And God, I pray this morning, if there are hearts in this room that are unwilling up until this point, up until this moment, they have been unwilling to come, 
to the wedding feast. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would accept this invitation. That they would throw off the excuses, throw off the cares in this world, and they would run to Christ. Show us our need yet again for Jesus and show us the provision that He has made by offering us the garments of His righteousness in place of our filthy rags. Father, be pleased to show us Your Son. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Him clearly and to savor Him for all that He is and for all that He has done. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This parable is incredibly clear. Uh, you, you don't need much of an explanation. God is the king. Jesus is his son. The messengers that are sending out the message are prophets or preachers of the gospel. The banquet, the wedding feast is heaven, quite specifically the marriage supper of the lamb. The first crowd, uh, they are filled with rejectors of Jesus. They are those who have rejected Jesus specifically in context. This is probably a reference to the Jews as a whole and the religious leaders specifically who have rejected their Messiah. The second group that receives the invitation are those who receive Jesus gladly and accept that invitation and come to him. And that in context is probably specifically the Gentiles. John chapter 1 verses 11 through 12, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. This parable is explaining that. His own did not receive him. They rejected him. But I I want to drill deep into this parable, drill down as deeply as we can go into this parable, because I think that there are other truths here that will encourage and challenge our hearts. So, historically, where are we in the life of Christ? Matthew 22, we find ourselves on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus has taken over the temple. He's teaching in the temple. Um, the the religious leaders in chapter 21, verse 23, had asked Jesus a question. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to cleanse the temple, to take over the temple, and to teach in the temple, to tell people what they are allowed to do and what they are not allowed to do? Who gave you that authority? And in answer to that question, Jesus gives three parables. The parable of the two sons, the one who is asked to do something, and he says no. The other is asked to do something, he says yes. The one who said no ends up coming back and does what was asked of him. The one who said yes immediately ends up saying, I don't want to do it at all. Jesus then talks about the parable of the vineyard, the the owner of the vineyard. He sent out uh, workers in the vineyard. They were uh, killed, the slaves were killed, and The Pharisees know everything that Jesus is saying here is about them. They know that. Verse 45, drop down to verse 45 in chapter 21. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They have been killing the messengers that God has been sending to them uh, with the message that you need to repent of your sins and turn and embrace Jesus as Messiah. They've been killing those messengers because they believe as good Jewish people, we just get to go into the kingdom because of our ethnicity. No, Jesus says it's not based on your ethnicity. It's based on will you repent of your sins and come to me for salvation. So this parable in Matthew 22 is the third parable in answer to the question, by what authority are you doing these things? It's very similar. If we had more time, we'd look at those first two parables. It's very similar to those parables. And it's a story about the kingdom. We're going to split it up into three parts 
this morning. Number one, we're going to see an invitation rejected. Number two, we're going to see an invitation received. And number three, we're going to see an intruder condemned. Let's look at the first point, an invitation rejected. Verse one, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, speaking in parables, and he says, the kingdom of heaven, the sphere of God's rule, all believers, the dominion of redemption, can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Wedding feast. When we think of marriage, we have a word monogamous, right? Monogamous. Gamus. That's the word here for wedding feast. Gamus. This is a celebration. The king has a son. The son is getting married. And we have a wedding feast. And a wedding celebration did not last one day. It lasts seven days. It was a, a week-long celebration. And this is the king's own son. This would be the most spectacular wedding of all weddings. Think of even today. People are so enthralled by royal weddings, right? The wedding of Princess Diana decades ago, and then the wedding just recently of Prince William and Kate Middleton. You can still go to the grocery store and you see magazines with their pictures on the cover. Like, why are we still infatuated with that? I don't know. Let's move on. They've moved on. Let's move on. But we're infatuated with this. How much more so would these people in this country, ruled by this king, be enthralled by the fact that the king's son is getting married? There's guests. There's a guest, a list of guests. Verse 3. The king sends out his slaves to call those, and notice what it says, to call those who had already been invited to the wedding feast. So this is not the first invitation. This is the second invitation. The first invitation would go something like this. Hey, the king's son is about to get married. We don't know when it's going to be. Preparations are being made. But we will come to you. You're invited now. The king wants you to know that you have an invitation, open invitation to come. And in a couple months, we will come back to you and let you know the wedding is at hand. Come join the wedding. So this was already, you have been invited. They've already been invited. And now they are just receiving the call, right? You just can't email everybody or phone call everybody or nationally televise everybody to say, hey, now is the time for the wedding uh, procession and the feast. No, so send slaves out to tell them The wedding is at hand. You knew it was coming. You were already invited. You already had the invitation. And now the wedding is at hand. Come to the wedding. It's here. The party's happening. Come join the party. But notice these guests are unwilling to come. End of verse 3. They are unwilling. Please note, they are not unable to come. They are unwilling to come. They made a conscious choice not to go. They thought about it. We had the invitation. We have an open access, open entry to join this wedding feast, but I do not want to go. It is not that they could not come. It's that they would not come. And because they would not come, they could not come. Because they were unwilling to go on their own volition, now they have been barred. They are not going to be allowed to go. But not quite yet. Verse 4, again, he sends out, the king sends out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, the invitation's already gone out, they received it, they accepted it. Behold, I've prepared everything. My dinner is prepared, my oxen are prepared, my fattened livestock are all butchered, everything is ready, just come and feast. Come and feast. Notice the kindness and the long-suffering of our God. 
he is rejected, out and out rejected, with a, a list of guests unwilling to come. And his response is not, fine, we'll kill them all. His response is, let's send more messengers. Maybe they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't get the point. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, long-suffering in the Greek, macrothumia. Macro is far off or, or far away as opposed to small and near. Macro is far away and thumia is his anger or wrath. So God's wrath is far removed from us. Long-suffering. It's going to take a while until his wrath comes. But these people, they don't need new messengers. They don't want new messengers. The messengers contain the exact same message. Hey, everything's ready. You denied one time. Will you accept this time? What do these guests want? They want a different message. We don't need new messengers. We need a new message inside of this, these new messengers. They want a new message. They want a message that says we can bring something. We can do something. But the message is clearly the wedding feast has been prepared. All you have to do is come. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Verse 5 says, they paid no attention. That's one Greek word. Utterly indifferent. Completely unconcerned. They just don't care. And they went to their own way. One to his farm. Another to his business. Greek word emporia. To his emporium. To his work. This is where I work. This is what matters to me. That's where I'm going. There's another parable that's very similar to this. It's not the same parable. Um, it's found in a different context, and there's differences in the parable, but it's so similar that I think it can help our understanding of this parable. So turn to Luke chapter 14 really quickly. Luke 14, verse 16. Jesus says, A man was giving a big dinner. So it's a man, not the king. It's a big dinner, not a wedding feast. Many are invited. And at the dinner hour, he sent the slave to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is ready. So that's the similarity. Come. The invitation's open. Come. But they all alike began to make excuses. In Matthew 22, it tells us that they went away to their farm and they went away to their business. Luke 14 fleshes out what the excuses are that are made such that somebody would not come to the wedding feast. What are these excuses? Verse 18, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. I, I have land, I have dirt. I need to stare at my dirt. Why? Is your dirt going to go anywhere? No, but I need to look at my dirt. I just need to stare at my dirt. Okay? Verse 19, another says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. That's, he's a very wealthy man. I'm going to try them out. I'm going to try them out. I bought them. I just want to give them a test drive here, have some fun. Please consider me excused. Another decently lame excuse. Verse 20 gives us one that's a little bit more inside of the realm of reality. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I can't come. Look, my wife said she doesn't want to go. Happy wife, happy life. We're not going. It's a little bit more real. Craig Blomberg says of these three excuses, what all three excuses share is an extraordinary lameness. Jesus purposefully made these three excuses incredibly lame. 
I, I just have things I have to do, like stare at dirt. I want to make sure the dirt's not moving. So these excuses are ridiculous. But please note, the people that are making these excuses, these excuses never appear lame to those making them, right? They never appear lame. This is a serious need. I I want to go. I wish I could go, but I can't go because I have to stare at dirt. Somebody says, that's a really ridiculous excuse. It's not to the person making the excuse. Those who are obsessed with business and home and family, they justify themselves. They mentally calculate that these things are more important and need my attention more so than receiving the invitation. I would rather not trade these things for the kingdom of God. They have no joy in God, and so they seek the pleasures of this world. Can we just say honestly, how stupid is it to say no to a feast where everything is provided to just simply go look at dirt. But that's the stupidity of sin, right? We choose dirt over a feast. In the words of Jeremiah chapter 2, we choose a broken cistern that can hold no water over the fountain of living water. These are terrible excuses. Let's turn back to Matthew 22. Jesus fills in the kinds of excuses that are being made in Luke chapter 14, so it's helpful for us. But turn back to Matthew 22. It's not just excuses that are made. Jesus gives us two categories of people that will not receive this invitation. One is just indifferent. Mm, I just don't really feel like going. I'm busy with worldly things. That's, that's secularism. We could call it that way. It's just, I'm indifferent. Secularism usually is indifferent. I just don't really care about religious things. I don't really care about God. I don't really care about those things. Well, there's a second category of people, and it's found in verse 6. The rest, the guests who were invited but are refusing to come, seized his slaves. They mistreated them, and they killed them. So one crowd is indifferent. One is very hostile. They're not hostile towards the servants themselves. They're hostile to the king, and therefore any representatives of the king they're going to be hostile toward. This is why Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, verses 52 through 53, was there ever a prophet of yours, you religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, was there ever a prophet of your fathers that you did not persecute? These slaves are the prophets of God. This is all the prophets in the Old Testament and entering into the New Testament with John the Baptist. They are killed because they're giving an invitation that says you can do nothing to get to God on your own. He made the way ready for you. You need to turn from everything that you have and follow him. They don't like that message. Secularism produces indifference. It's okay. It's no big deal if you want to believe that. Your truth is true to you. My truth is true to me. Whatever. False religion produces hostility. How dare you tell me that my religion is wrong? How dare you tell me that what I believe about God is wrong? Again, these Pharisees, they knew that Jesus was speaking of them back in chapter 21, verses 45 and 46. And if some of them didn't get this, they're going to know soon enough because in the next chapter, Jesus is going to pronounce woes upon them. He's going to curse them and say, you have tried on your own to teach a law, works-based moral system where you get to God on what you do and on who you are, and that will not save. God's calling his people to honor his son. He already called Israel, and they have rejected him. 
How is the king going to respond to indifference and hostility? Verse 7, the king was enraged. Of course he is. People are refusing to come to the wedding feast of his son. This is dishonoring. This is disrespectful. Not only that, they're killing his slaves. So he sent his armies, literally the word is troops, sent them out in small bands all over the country and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Some people think that that phrase, set their city on fire, is a prophecy of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus is saying here, look, your system of religion is going to be torn down because you've rejected your Messiah. I think it can mean that. I I don't think it only has to mean that. I think you can blow that up to understand, as he's going to say to this intruder down in the rest of the parable, if you don't enter the way that God has called you to enter, you will be destroyed by fire, period. Judgment is coming. But notice, as we end point number one, verse eight, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? This is so crucial. These guests were unworthy, not because of who they were intrinsically. They had already been called, right? They had already been invited to come to the feast. So they were worthy enough to be accepted through this invitation to come and join the wedding feast. But what made them unworthy? They rejected the call. They rejected the invitation. They did not accept the invitation. Worthiness here is not dependent on moral virtue. They had been called regardless of their moral virtue. Worthiness is dependent upon saying yes to an invitation and going or saying no and rejecting. So, God's invitation is rejected. Point number two Verse 9, an invitation is going to be received. He's going to give another invitation. Verse 9, go therefore to the main highways. That word is crossroads, where a lot of people would be. And as many as you find there, no discrimination whatsoever, as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. So the slaves went out into the streets. They gathered together all that they found, both good and evil. That doesn't mean that uh, intrinsically uh, who you are deep down inside. We know that no one is good, no, not one. What this is saying is regardless of who you are externally, if you're a decent person, if you're a completely immoral person, your ethics do not matter before the king. He's calling whoever will come can come. And the wedding hall is filled with dinner guests. Let's go back to Luke 14, because Luke, in recording Jesus' parable, Jesus is going to tell us who is in this wedding hall, who is at this dinner, the type of people that make up this party. Who is here in this party? Verse 21. The slave comes back and reports to his master that all these people have rejected the invitation, so the head of the household became angry. And he said, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, 
and the lame. As I read the Gospels, as I read the accounts in Scripture of Jesus interacting with people, and I see those who end up responding to the call that Jesus makes to come to him, the kind of people that Jesus attracts in the pages of Scripture are not those who have everything going for them. Those who felt like they had the world on a string don't tend to really care at all for this man who ultimately holds the entire world in his hands. Instead, it's broken, burdened, beat down, the riffraff of society, those who have nothing to offer, those are the ones who seem most attracted to Jesus. There are definitely exceptions in the pages of Scripture, for sure. But even when outwardly successful people come to Jesus, it's because they realize inwardly, I have nothing to offer him. And they recognize the failure inwardly of who they are. Simply put, as one pastor says, Jesus is after losers. He's calling to himself those who have nothing to offer him. Look at, look at us. If you're a believer here this morning, look at yourself and realize that we all, as believers, have all the makings of being a liability to Jesus' mission, right? We have all the makings of messing his mission up. We are not filled with assets, and yet he chooses us. He does this, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, to shame the strong and wise and powerful things of this world. But we have to recognize he doesn't choose us for what we inherently have to offer him. We are all poor, blind, crippled, beggars, lame before him. So the Father brings in these people to a feast for the purpose of making his gospel invitation look very, very big. He calls people to himself that will be more impressed with the feast than those who eat a feast every single night. This is the way Spurgeon says it. The persons who come to the wedding are more grateful than the first invited might have been if they had come. The richer sort had a good dinner every night. Those farmers could always kill a fattened sheep. The merchants could always buy a calf. Thank you for nothing, they would have said to the king if they had accepted his invitation. But these poor beggars picked off the streets would have welcomed the fatlings. Oh, how glad they were. One of them would have said to the other, it's a long time since you and I sat down to such a joint as this. The other would have answered, I can hardly believe that I'm really in the palace dining with the king. Why, yesterday I begged all day and only had two pence at night. Long live the king, says I, and the blessings be upon his prince and his bride. I warrant that they were very thankful for such a, a feast. Then he says this, the joy that day was much more expressed than it would have been had others come. Those ladies and gentlemen who were first invited, if they had come to the wedding, they would have seated themselves in a very stiff and proper manner. But these beggars, they make a merry clatter. They are not muzzled by propriety. They are glad at the sight of every dish. I just, I read that and I think of our worship services. When we enter into the worship service, we should be making a merry clatter. We are feasting as beggars on the meal that God has given to us. Spurgeon continues, the occasion became more famous than it would otherwise have been. If the feast had gone on as usual, it would have been only one among many such things for these others. But now this royal banquet was the only one of its kind, unique and unparalleled. 
to gather and poor men off the streets, laboring men and idle men, bad men and good men, to the wedding of the crown prince. This was a new thing under the sun. Everybody talked of it. There were songs made about it, and they were sung in the king's honor where none honored kings before. That which looked as though it would defame the king because he sent out an invitation and nobody came. It actually turned out to his honor and the wedding feast was furnished with guests. And then he ends with a couple sentences that I want you to hear clearly. He exhorts his listeners, Dear friends, when the Lord saved some of us by grace, by his own grace, it was not a common event. When he brought us great sinners to his feet and washed us and clothed us and fed us and made us his own, it is a wonder to be talked of forever and ever. We will never leave off praising his name throughout all of eternity. Only those who enter this feast and realize they have nothing to offer God and and a couple more days out on the streets and I would have died, they will have reason to praise this glorious king. So, back in Luke 14, Jesus says, the slave brings in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In verse 22, the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. There's still room. And so the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Compel them, bring them in, urge them, constrain them, make them come. The lamb will have the reward of his sufferings. All that the father gives to his son will come. So he says, go out and invite them. They'll come, they'll come. Turn back to Matthew 22. We have a better description now of what the guests who refused to go to the wedding feast looked like, and we have a better description of what the guests who actually end up coming to the wedding feast look like. And so Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 10, the dinner, the wedding hall is filled with dinner guests. So there's a, an invitation that's rejected initially, and then there's an invitation that's received by a completely different people group. But this leads us to verse 11 and point number three. There is an intruder, and he is condemned. An intruder is condemned. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And what Jesus is doing here is very interesting because he easily could have ended his parable in verse 10. It was very clear his point. Look, I I came to my own. They knew the invitation was here. The prophets had told them the Messiah is coming. Prepare the way. John the Baptist had said, he's here. The kingdom is at hand. And you have refused the invitation. Therefore, I'm giving it to another people group. Like Paul says in Romans 11, because of the fall of Israel, it's the rise of the Gentiles. They will come into the kingdom Not that there is a total hardening of Israel. They will ultimately, it's a partial hardening. There will ultimately be, in the time of the tribulation, Israel will repent on a national level and come to Christ, come to their Messiah. But the point has been made. Jesus could have ended his parable and said, you rejected, I'm giving the kingdom to another people group, and it's no longer yours, it's theirs, and you will be destroyed. You will be judged for your rejection. But here, he's going to personalize it. 
And in effect, he's almost giving another invitation to those listening. Hey, you're trying to get into the kingdom a certain way, and I'm telling you that way will not work, but will you come in my way? And so he says, there is a single man who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes. Everybody else has these apparent wedding clothes. They are a certain type of robe that would have been given and handed out by the king to make sure everybody looked a certain way to enter into the banquet hall. This man thought he looked good enough apart from the king's robe. And we know what these robes are. These robes are the imputed righteousness of Christ, the the righteousness that has been given to us, alien to ourselves. It is not our righteousness. It is Jesus' perfect, sinless life that he gives to us on the basis of faith by his grace alone. This man says, I can come into the kingdom another way. I can come in on my own terms. What Jesus is saying here is there are going to be many people who try to crash the kingdom, as it were, try to sneak into the kingdom. You remember Pilgrim's Progress? Remember Pilgrim, uh, Christian, is um, at the foot of the cross, the, the burden is lifted, and he goes with joy. He's given a scroll, he's given a key, he's given new clothes, he's a new creature, he's a new creation. And he starts running down the straight and narrow path. And as he's running, there's a big wall to his side. He sees three sleeping men. And then he keeps on going. He tries to wake them up. They will not wake up. He keeps on running. And as he's running, he sees two men climbing over the wall. And John Bunyan tells us specifically their names, formality and hypocrisy. And then John Bunyan specifies they were dressed in very fine clothing. They, They thought they could make it into heaven on their own. Christian says, did you lose your burden? Did you get new clothes at the cross? And they say, no, 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 we didn't need to do that. This is an easier way. This is a way that we can make sure works for us. And in the end, they find only doom and destruction. You see, the legalist expects to attend the wedding feast dressed in his own personal best, looking at others and expecting to see the other guests dressed in lesser fashion than he. And as this man shows up, he, realize, he realizes, I don't have the best clothing on. Everybody else does. Because the garb of the self-righteous is a ragged, tattered garb. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing to offer God. That is what this man is trying to get into this wedding feast wearing. What is necessary to get into the wedding feast? How do you enter the wedding feast? Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have to be perfect. If you want to get into heaven on your own, okay, go ahead for it. Do it and try it out. You have to be perfect to get into heaven on your own. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah says that God clothes us with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. I think that Jesus is alluding to that here to say this is an alien covering. This is an alien outside of us righteousness. So the king comes over, he sees this man, and he says to him, notice with compassion, verse 12, friend, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? What's the man's answer? He's speechless. He's speechless. Donald Gray Barnhouse um, was one of the the pastors and the men who popularized that question. If you were to die tonight, 
um, and stand before God and he were to ask you, how, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? He was one of the pastors that really popularized that question in evangelism. He said there are only three possible answers to that question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? There's three possible answers. One answer is, because I'm a good person. I have my own righteousness. I've been perfect. I've kept the law perfectly. I can get in because of who I am. And obviously we know from the Bible that our own righteousness is filthy rags before God. We cannot get in on our own goodness. The second response is what this man does. Speechlessness. When you stand before God and you realize... I thought I was a good person. And now I see holiness. Now I see glory. I am not a good person. So the answer is, I shouldn't be allowed in, but I don't want to say that. I want to try and see if there's any hope left. I don't know what to respond, and so speechless. That's what Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says. Every mouth will be silenced before God. If you're trying to get in on your own goodness, the law silences all of us. We can't get in our, on our goodness because we don't have goodness. So what is the only answer that will allow us entrance into heaven? It's answer number three, and Donald Gray Barnhouse says, none at all. If God is asking you, why should I let you into heaven? What reasons do you have for me to accept you into heaven? And the answer is, none at all so far as I myself am concerned. None at all. But Jesus died for my sins, and he has given me the covering of his own righteousness in which alone I dare to stand before you. I am here at your invitation, and I am here wearing that clothing. That is, that is the best answer. I am here because you invited me, and I am here wearing nothing but your righteousness. I dare not wear any other righteousness. That's why we sang earlier, dressed in his righteousness alone. No other righteousness. Not his righteousness, and then we'll put a little tie on of our goodness, or, or, or put like one of those little uh, flowers that you wear at weddings. I'll put that on my coat jacket. And you see, I tried to be nice. I helped an old lady across the street, so boom, there we go. We're good. Nothing. Dressed in his righteousness alone. And because of that, we will be faultless to stand before his throne. Our own good morality cannot get us into heaven. If it could, then Jesus died in vain. Remember his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, if there's another way, if there's any other way, let's let this, this cup pass us by. And if there is another way, God the Father would have said, oh, yep, there is another way. Wait, hang on, time out. People can make it on their goodness. It's going to be a really, really small amount of people, but there is another way, so don't go to the cross. But instead, there is no answer from heaven because there is no other way but Jesus alone. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says in John, 4, in John 14, 6. You hear that question a lot. No, just religion. There's many roads that lead to God, right? There's many different paths that you can get to God in many different ways. I respond by saying, you're right. There are a bunch of different ways that get to God. In fact, every single road that we take ends up at the judgment seat of Christ. There, there's a fork in the road. And you either enter into heaven by Jesus' righteousness alone, or you do not because you're trusting on your own goodness to get to God. There's only one way. That's why we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. I can't get to God on my own. I need you. So I come to you naked for dress. I'm helpless and I look to you for grace. 
I'm foul, so to the fountain I fly to be cleansed. You need to wash me, Savior, or else I die. One hymn says it this way. It's a hymn, you probably know it. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. I love this hymn. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds and knees arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand on that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived and died for me. Jesus, the endless praise to thee whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. So here's the response. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. This man is speechless because he's not wearing the righteousness of Christ. So the king says, verse 13, to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Throw him into outer darkness. That is a long ways away from a wedding feast. This is the king's castle, the king's court. Would have been lit up. There is a huge party happening. And for this, this man to be in a place where he cannot see any speck of light, this is as far removed from the king's palace as possible. And then Jesus describes this place to us as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know that that is a description of hell, of judgment, justice, and God's wrath against sin. Jesus ends by saying, verse 14, Many are called, but few are chosen. You've been called, and your ability to answer that call depends on the sovereign working of God in your heart, that the new birth would open your eyes to see your need for a Savior. But the call goes out nonetheless. And the call goes out even this morning to receive the invitation and come wearing the righteousness of Christ. So how do we wrap all this up? Three points. Number one, in application to this very clear parable, number one, we need to preach the gospel to everyone. Preach the gospel to everyone. As Luke 14 says, compel them to come in. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says we're God's ambassadors and the love of Christ constrains us, compels us, and controls us. If we have been given the love that Jesus has lavished upon us, we need to go tell others about it. We are beggars who have been given mercy and found bread, and we need to go tell others where the bread is. Preach the gospel to everyone. Go into the highways and the byways. Go to the hedges. Go to the streets. Go to the crossroads where lots of people are. And we had the privilege of hearing even this morning of uh, two of our people in our church going out into the world, into busy places to share the gospel. We need to be doing that. Preach the gospel to everyone. Preach the gospel to everyone. Number two, respond to the king's invitation. Respond to the king's invitation. This means you must say goodbye to your feast and say yes to his feast. The reality is we don't have much of a feast on our own, but we need to deny ourselves. Anything that we choose at the expense of following Jesus becomes poison to us. It becomes the means of our death. 
So we need to turn from those things and choose Christ. We need to follow him and feast at his table. At the end of Luke 14, at the end of that parable, Jesus says, none of those who are first invited will taste of my dinner. Jesus has offered a taste of his splendor and his majesty, a feast of his glory. Isaiah 55, we can come with money that we don't even have to buy, bread, to buy milk, to buy wine, to be satisfied. So here's my question to us. We saw a group of people who had pretty lame excuses in Luke 14. What excuses are you making to not come to Jesus today? If you're not saved, if you're not a believer, I praise the Lord that you're here this morning. And I want to ask, why are you not a believer? Why have you not accepted the invitation of eternal life? You have some form of objection, some excuse, and you use that to say, I don't need to come to the wedding feast. I don't need to go. What excuses are you making today? The reality is there are so many excuses that are made. They're endless. I had a list of about 23, and I decided don't need to read them because we all have excuses as to why we will not do what God tells us to do. Sometimes we say, oh, I just, I'm so busy, I have so many responsibilities, I'm just too busy. The, the reality is you may think that you are too busy to deal with this invitation. I'll get to it later. I'll get to this invitation later. And you may be too busy to get to it now, but the reality is you and I are never too busy to die. We're never too busy to have our life end and stand before the judgment seat of God. Today is the day to answer the invitation, to answer the call. We need to take care of this invitation and answer without any excuse and run and flee to Christ. But if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've answered that invitation, by God's grace you are going to be at that wedding feast one day with all, all the saints. My question for us as we dig deep into our hearts is what excuses are we making currently to not live the way God has asked us to live? To not do what God's asked us to do? Will we surrender the plausible arguments that we make for doing what God tells us to do inconvenient? We have a lot of reasons why we think just God's way is inconvenient, and usually it is. But will you do things God's way, trusting that obedience always brings joy? Number three, finally, so we, have, we need to preach the gospel to everyone. We need to respond to the invitation that God has given to us. And number three, we need to praise God for this invitation. We need to praise God for his invitation and his provision. If you are here this morning and you are saved, then your life is one of feasting on Jesus and enjoying him. Every single day is a feast for you. Come and enjoy, and you don't get to enjoy on the basis of your own goodness. You enjoy on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So we say with Donald Barnhouse, I come at your invitation, Lord, and I come wearing the clothes you have provided. And we say with Spurgeon, Dear friends, when the Lord saved some of us by his grace, it was no common, common event. When he brought us great sinners to his feet and washed us and clothed us and fed us and made us his own, it is a wonder to be talked of forever and ever. We will never leave off praising his name throughout all eternity. Let's not wait until eternity to praise his name forever. Let's start praising his name right now for the grace he's given to us. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. You gave us an invitation. You called us to yourself. You chose us to be a part of this feast. 
and you gave us the ability to come by that invitation. You gave us the ability to answer the call, to respond in faith, and now we get to feast. And God, I pray that we would never become used to the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters, that we are feasting now at the king's table. We would have been happy just for scraps of bread. We would have been happy for just the trash bags that the king would have placed with old, dirty, rotten food. We would have been happy with that, just to taste a morsel of your glory. And yet you've given us everything. You've given us your son, and we stand now in his righteousness alone. So may we not wait for eternity. May we not wait for heaven to praise you. May our lips shout forth your praise now that it is in Christ and in him alone that we can stand faultless before the throne. God, thank you for grace. May we live in it this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.